Welcome to part two with my guest, Gil Havav. We ended our first episode talking about some misconceptions when defining Israeli food. Gil starts us off in part two with some clarifications. Take it away, Gil. The biggest mistake that people here in the States or all over the world make about Israeli food is that they think that it is the Ashkenazi food that they know from their country. Now, in Israel, the majority is non-Ashkenazi, and Israeli food is a bit different. It's not that you cannot get, let's say, chicken soup or, I don't know, the, the, the knishes or gefilte mm-hmm. fish in Israel, but it would be quite rare and definitely not kosher in most cases because we, we do not eat kosher. The, you know, the majority of Israel does not eat kosher. Um, so this is one difference. The definition of Israeli f- cuisine, if it exists, because don't forget that Israel is very young, it's less than 70 years old, so we're still Working growing. It out. Yeah. Uh, but the definition would be um, a Mediterranean, an East Mediterranean, Middle Eastern cuisine. So it's, uh, think about Greek food, think about Turkish food, think, think about South Italian food, add more sunshine and make it shameless, just like Israelis are. (laughs) No respect to rules, everything goes. And don't forget that Israel is a cluster of people from 70 different ethnicities. So you would find Soviet Georgian food in Israel, and you would find French food, and Italian food, and Arab food, of course, and Russian food, and Yemenite food, all mixed in the same plate. And actually, it's very nice. It sounds so amazing. And it's, you it's in your face. Yeah. It's very direct. And this is, it works very good on Instagram, luckily for <laughs> us. And right now, Israeli restaurants are at the forefront of the world's cuisine. You know, in New York, in Philadelphia, in London, the Barbarian, and a Jerusalemite restaurant just won the Best Restaurant of the Year Award uh, two days ago. Whoa. So, so uh, Israeli food is really loved because it is so in your face, because it is so good for communications, because it's usually either red or orange or yellow, which are the colors the television likes, etc., etc. And so if somebody wanted to experiment with what we'll call Israeli cuisine, do you have some hints or suggestions of ways to just kind of dip your uh, hands into that? Uh, Forget about cream. Don't overuse butter, use tons of fresh vegetables. And when I say fresh, I mean vegetables of the season. Don't, don't be trying to make fresh tomato sauce in winter. It just, it, it's, it's not the thing to do. Uh, lots of fruit and, um, and make it fast and light. Israel is very, very, very vegetarian friendly and super vegan friendly. The largest number of vegan restaurants per capita is in Tel Aviv. Really? In all, of, all over the world. Yes, Tel Aviv is a vegan uh, oasis. Wow. And, y- y- you know, you just picture all these bright colors and um, spices. And it just, you want to eat healthy. I'm yeah. thinking you want to really eat healthy and take advantage of all those. Yeah, and I wouldn't vegetables. say that, that, that the everyday cooking in Israel would be farm to table, but it's definitely market to table. People shop in markets. People shop for fresh vegetables. Fresh vegetables are abundant and very cheap. And uh, it makes it very easy to cook healthy, good food. I'm wondering if you could tell me about 
some of your projects that are food related, at least for the moment. And I, I thought I read at one point that you were doing something through Facebook and a, a, as a like a global cookbook. Did did that happen? It, it, didn't, it didn't really happen. People did not contribute. We wanted to do it. It sounded so amazing. Yes, what it a was great a great I- idea. It was a great idea. Those <laughs> fools. <laughs> That's too bad. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't work. Um, what else do I do with food? I did a very, very, very interesting cookbook that was called Jam Session with uh, the cir- circled circle of bereaved parents, uh, both Jewish and Arab. It's a very interesting organization in Israel run by a dear friend of mine, Robbie Demlin, who lost her son. And uh, she started a group uh, where bereaved parents from both sides uh, were meeting together and talking and trying to improve the world. Mm -hmm. And they shared the same pain. And they they really became brothers in, in, in a surprising way, brothers and sisters. And then one day she called me and she said, Gil, I want us to have fun. I don't want our meetings to be all about crying and talking about politics. We really have to live. We have to go on living. Let's do something mm-hmm. that would be fun. And why don't you come and cook with us? And I said, gladly. And she said, I promise you it's not going to be sad. I came, we drank together, <laughs> we laughed together, and then we decided to do a cookbook about preserving, about preserving the memory. So we did jams together. This is why ah. we call it Jam Session. And you have Arab jams and Jewish jams and jams from South Africa and from France and from Germany and from the occupied territories, of course. And it was such an amazing experience. And I even, even, even have a picture of Robbie, my friend, uh, giving it to the uh, to Mahmoud Abbas, to the head of the uh, Palestinian Authority, and he hugged the book, and it was really a feeling that you know we managed to touch hearts. Yeah. So sometimes food can really, you know, it cannot mend the world, and I do not believe that when people sit next to the same table, everything is resolved. But if it made these people happy for two or three afternoons. I'm content. That's a lot. Yeah. A- and, and just the fact that it's bringing the community together to heal together. Yes. Um, food, food can do uh, magical things. Yes, yeah. definitely. That's a lovely story. So tell me about your travels around the world. Do you, do you still travel as much doing all your yeah. food critic, and critic work? And, and what do you do in the U.S. when you come? So I travel either for lecturing in conferences all over the world or for the Israeli embassies and consulates, or for my show. So uh, recently I withdrew a bit from shows about food. I moved to shows about history. So I had a show called uh, Food for Thought. It was about interviews with Nobel Prize laureates. And it all begins with food, of course. So I had another show that was about interviews with intelligent people in Israel. Uh And I really wanted to interview Robert Oman. Robert Oman is a Nobel Prize laureate, an Israeli Nobel uh, Nobel Prize laureate, is about 85 years old, super religious, uh, an avid right-winger, like just (laughs) the opposite of myself, but a very sweet man, of course. And I really wanted to interview him, but the show was aired on Saturdays, and he was religious, so we couldn't do it. 
eventually we had one episode of the show that was not on Saturday. <laughs> so we immediately we called him and he said, quick, quick, come over, come over to my house in Jerusalem. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. What do I cook? So I said, no, 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 Professor Oman, it's your mind we're interested at. He said, are you kidding me? I'm going to have Gilchobab in my kitchen and I'm not, I'm not going to make my famous chocolate mousse. Forget about it. Oh Don't my. come. <laughs> so we let him cook chocolate mousse for us. <laughs> And then I understood that these Nobel Prize laureates, they did everything twice already. They have been around the world, and they won every prize, and everybody admires them. They want to play. So I said, okay, let's do a show around the world interviewing Nobel Prize laureates from all fields, yes, physics and peace and, you know, medicine, you name it, and I'll cook with them too. None of them agreed to cook. None of them. Not, not even one. I don't believe it. So we did the interviews, which was really, really, really interesting. Yeah, I'm sure. I got sure. to interview Elie Wiesel and John Nash and, uh, you know, and Eric Kendall and everybody. But later on, I cooked something for them without them. So Ah. <laughs> kind of a mixed bag there. Yes. <laughs> what a great story. I love that. <laughs> and how was the chocolate mousse, can you say? It was very good. It okay. was like home-style chocolate mousse, like cooking of the 70s, <laughs> which is exactly what I like. Ah, all right. <laughs> That's very fun. I've also heard, and maybe this is past tense, that you've done pop-up restaurants. I, I'm still doing it. You yes. are. Yes, yes. I'm doing pop-up restaurants all over the world. So because... I'm sort of a semi-celebrity in Israel because of my food shows. Everybody wants me to open a restaurant in Israel. Come open a restaurant, come do this, just give us your name. And I really don't want to do it. I love meeting food from the right side of the ta table. Uh -huh. I want it to be, you know, uh, if possible on a white tablecloth. <laughs> it can be also in a bistro, on a wooden table, it's okay. But I don't want to deal with it with, with washing the dishes and with electricity and with, you know, getting the the parsley for the the best <laughs> price possible. I don't like it. So I, I always refused. And then we got the idea of op of opening pop-up restaurants. So it's only for one day, usually abroad. I bring the word of Yemenite cuisine Whoa. to places that never knew of it. So we did it in uh, New York, in China, in Warsaw, in Germany. Uh, my next project is trying to get my Yemenite grandmother's recipes to Antarctica. Ooh. I just came from Montevideo and, you know, Uruguay is so southern that they have a res research post in, in Antarctica. So the Israeli ambassador promised me that she'll try to sneak me in uh, to the this uh, post, and I will be cooking uh, Yemenite food in Antarctica. Whoa, yes. what a great thing. Next summer, yes. And it's really fun because people really don't know what Yemenite food is about, and it's such great food. I mean, I wouldn't say that it's the best cuisine. There are cuisines that I really prefer to Yemenite food, but it's, it's good, it's simple, it's poor man's food, and it's direct. It warms people's hearts, mm -hmm. so it's a great way to communicate. And is there any way people could find out about your pop-up restaurant so that they could actually be if there? If there, if if there is one, then we promote it uh, through internet, through Eat With, through the embassy, through you know, through the restaurant that that hosts us. But uh, it's once in a blue moon. It's sure. not that I do it every two months or so. It's like twice a year. And in different continents. So yeah, even yeah. if you knew that I'm doing a pop-up restaurant in Antarctica, you wouldn't hop on the first Hercules that flies down there. You're right about that. <laughs> I would I would think about it for a moment. But I'll you're make right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so 
Uh, here's another project that I'm going to ask you about, and I'm wondering if, if you're working on this. An ebook for Israel's top ethnic restaurants. Is this something you're working on? It's something we did. Um, a, a, a dear friend of mine, Jack Gottlieb, wanted to do like a Jewish Lonely Planet or, or uh -huh. something like, like a Jewish trip advisor, like for all the lost synagogues and cemeteries, etc. I'm not that interested in synagogues and cemeteries. But he found out, as we always do, that all people care about is food. <laughs> so if they go to places, they, w they really know, want to know where to eat. And many tourists that come to Israel really want to experience more than hotel food. Absolutely. But they go to tourist traps. And we said, why don't we use this amazing resource that we have in Israel, the ethnic restaurants, the everyday restaurants, the working class restaurants, and, and, and show them to people and give them the addresses and, uh, and promote them because it's really a hidden gem that Israel has. And we did it. And it's very successful. People, people really use it. It's, uh, I, I get many responses from people that say, wow, I, I never knew that there's Libyan food in Israel or Persian food in Israel or Tunisian food in Israel. It's nice. And so people can still use this? It's, it's yeah, still it's accessible. online somewhere, yes. Okay, yes, yes, yes. so I'll get the... I'll get you the address. Yeah, and no then we'll worry. put it on the website. Gladly. Lots of people travel to Israel, and so what a great thing to have when you go. Can't think of anything more fun, really. It's like your recommendation list, so it's <laughs> excellent. Do you do, do you do a lot of cooking at home? I do. You know, God, if she exists, takes revenge uh, through the people we love. So I got, as a present from God, a partner that really loves fish and Japanese food, which I really oh dislike. No. Yeah. And a daughter that loves fish <laughs> and that <laughs> finds it really fun to humiliate me. So people always ask her, wow, you're the daughter of Gilchot Bab. <laughs> what do you have at home? Schnitzel. <laughs> that, that's it. Like schnitzel and pasta. This is what she wants. And fish. I cook fish for them. I even touch fish with my... Look at these sacred hands. They were not hands. meant to touch <laughs> fish or drink water. I do it for them with love. Ah, <laughs> and so um, in this kitchen that you cook in in your house, would you call it a dream kitchen? Are there things about that kitchen that make it a great place to cook? Are there things that... Um, Are yet to be improved. Well, maybe. You could talk <laughs> about that too. I'm just wondering in terms of um, what you think are essential things to have in a kitchen, that might be good things for other people to think about when they're in their kitchen. So... One thing that I made sure of when we were building our house is that the, the kitchen would be a separate room, not an open kitchen. I don't like open kitchens because I don't like the smells infiltrating into the living space or, or just the mess being seen from the living room. So I wanted a kitchen with a door. When I become rich, <laughs> like in a few <laughs> centuries from now, uh -huh. um, my kitchen will be big enough to have a very, very, very big dining table in the kitchen. And I'll have yet another dining room at home, but I love eating in the kitchen and not in a small on a small table, but in a very, very big, big, big din dining table. No island, just a kitchen and a table. And that's about it. Otherwise, kitchens should should be kept simple and, and, and functional. I like that. Yeah. Are there any other exciting projects that we should know about that you're doing that are not necessarily related to food? Let's see. 
I just finished my, my current show. The show that is aired is about one of our greatest enemies. You know that the two real enemies of mankind are nature and sport. <laughs> so I really dislike both. So I one day I was sitting with Danny, my partner, and having breakfast. And then he just lowered the newspaper. He usually hides behind the newspaper so he doesn't have to form eye contact with me. <laughs> we prefer to be in two different continents I if see, possible. I see, I <laughs> see. And he looks at me and says, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Where did games begin? And I said, you know what? It's a good theme for a show. So we did a show of 24 episodes around the world about the, the, the origins of sports, like soccer, for instance, uh -huh. which is, uh, you know, we all think that it's European, started as a girly game in China. No. And basketball, which, of course, started in the U.S., uh, but was started by a Canadian person. When it got to Europe, w we shot the first uh, basketball hall where they played basketball in Europe for the first time. It's in Paris. It still exists in, the, in sort of a... French YMCA, it has a huge uh, pillar in the middle, a post in the middle. They were playing around the post. Oh, my goodness. Uh, so it's, it's all sorts of funny stories. And for me, of course, it was a show about history. It was mm -hmm. a good way to convey stories of history through something that's very popular as sports. We did the same with a show that was called Meals That Made History. It was talking about important events in history, but then asking, but what were they eating when it occurred? So we did an amazing <sighs> episode in Washington. Uh, you know that the second inauguration of, uh, of Lincoln turned into a huge food fight. I did not know yes, that. Yes, and you have the newspapers of the era saying that this is, you know, the, the most embarrassing thing that ever happened in American history. They were selling tickets to the ball, for $10, I believe, a man could come with two women. Oh, my. And they planned on serving food for 300 people, but they got 5,000. So people <sighs> were rushing to the buffet and starting to throw food. Oh, I'm my. just thinking of poor Lincoln. Hasn't he suffered enough? Right. And a food fight, too. So we did not redo the food fight, but <laughs> I was dancing the waltz in the Smithsonian with a very sweet lady oh my, oh dressed as Lincoln. Oh, gee. <laughs> how fascinating. That's, just, that's so cool. I think that the fun of it is the fact that I can control. I, I don't necessarily like doing television unless it's done under my rules. And the fact that I write the scripts, I present the show, and I edit it makes me feel in control just like the Stalin that I am and makes me be able to invent stuff and do it. So it's my job to dream up these things, and then there's a poor producer that has to go and make it happen. <laughs> but usually it does happen. Yeah, wow, what great ideas. And can we see any of your TV shows? Like, is anything some on YouTube? Some of them are on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, the shows are in Hebrew. I, I assume that, so, yeah. But uh, some of them, yes. Some of them are on YouTube, yes. Whoa. You just sound like you have this really exciting, adventurous life. People always tell me that, but you know, the thing I do most is sleep. I go to sleep at uh, 8.30 or 9 at night. Then I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. If I'm lucky, I manage to grab a baby's nap at between 10 and 11. Then I have lunch. Then I go to sleep, of course. It's the siesta. Ah. Then I get up, and then I go to sleep again at 8.30. So mostly I sleep, 
And even when we, we are shooting, when we're traveling, so I always sit in the back seat of the car, and when, when we're traveling, it's not exactly sleeping, but it's sort of floating, and my producer always hates it. She tells me, you're not going to fall asleep now. You're not going to fall asleep now. <laughs> I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. This is why you don't have wrinkles, because you sleep all the time. Stop doing it. You're doing it to annoy me. But I love sleeping. <laughs> so this is the greatest adventure. Well, I believe you that you sleep, but, I, <laughs> but I'm looking at this list of things you do, and... You find time somehow, and I'm sure you're not doing it in your sleep. It's because I'm an elderly man. I had 55 years to do it. It's not. It hasn't started yesterday. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm going to ask you one last thing. If yes. you, if you could leave us with one thought about Israeli food, what would that be? Obviously, you know that it's going to be a long story because I don't give short answers. This is great. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so. People often ask me, when, when a restaurant critic enters a restaurant, what does he look for? And my automatic reply is truth, which is a bit funny and it sounds a bit full of hot air. You look for truth. You look for French fries. Come on. <laughs> but no, I, I really feel that I look for truth. And a few years ago, I learned what what I meant to say. I mean, I, I, I came across the answer for, for this thing of looking for truth. It happened in a very simple working class restaurant, Libyan working class uh, restaurant in a small town in the north of Israel called Hadera. And uh, the restaurant was owned by a guy named Eliko. And Eliko told me his story that made me understand that, that I was right. And his story is he comes from a Libyan family. You know, Israel was established in 1948 by Jews who fled from Europe, of course, after persecutions and Holocaust. But right after Israel was established, Jews were persecuted in the Arab world. So in North Africa, in Mesopotamia, in Iraq, in Syria, etc. And they were coming to Israel, in Yemen, of course, and with nothing. So Eliko came from a very well-to-do family in Libya. They owned the Ford Car Agency for the whole of North Africa. They were very rich and overnight they had to get up and leave and run away to Israel with only their clothes on. Israel was a very poor country. It couldn't, you know, accommodate everybody. And they were put up in a tent for two years, summer, winter, winds, you know. And later on, they got a, a studio apartment, a one-room apartment, not a one-bedroom, a studio apartment for a family of eight people, two parents and six children. They split it in half. In one half, they lived. In one half, they opened a grocery store. And this is how they make do, and this is how they live. And he was educated with care and with love by his parents, and he grew up, and he became a car mechanic and was very successful and became... Maybe not rich, but well-to-do. When he turned 50, he decided that he should quit working as a car mechanic because it wasn't what he was meant to do. His vocation in life was to feed people. Mm. Clothed the garage, opened a very small, direct, simple restaurant uh, of Libyan food, of the recipes he knew from home. And uh, he told me, you know, it's as if I fulfilled my dream, but something was bugging me. And one day my mother came to visit me and I told her, Mom, there's something I don't understand here. Look at me. I'm rich. I have the best kitchen. I have workers. I have the best produce. I have time. I cook your recipes 
and they're okay, but they're never as good. They're never as tasty as they were in that tent or in that, in, in that one-room apartment where we were eating from tin plates. Why is it so? And his mom looked at him and answered in Arabic. She said, Ya Ibni, my son, in Arabic, you didn't get it yet? It's because we were hungry. And this is truth. Truth mm -hmm. comes with difficulty. Truth comes with love. It's not about being glamorous. And I think that good Israeli food is about being human. It's about seeing the people that are around you. You have Palestinians. You have new immigrants. You have elderly people. You have poor people. Hug them. Care for them. See if they need any help. Feed them. And that food would be the greatest, not molecular food. That's just so lovely. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank what, you. What a, what a great way to end, end the podcast. And it's been just a joy to, to talk with you. It was my uh, honor, and I'll be back. Uh, yes, that would be <laughs> wonderful. Gil, this was so lovely. Thank you very, very, very much. Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it very much. Oh, I'm glad. Um, <laughs> this was... Yeah, it's, this was a very special day for me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to The Big Schmear today. I want to give a special shout-out to Spurtis Institute of Jewish Learning and Leadership in Chicago for providing the space to record this episode. And Moran Berman, Consul for Public Diplomacy, Consulate General of Israel to the Midwest, for making arrangements for me to be able to interview Gil Havav. Our recording engineer is Hudson Fair. Our editor and mix engineer is Steve Robinson, and our theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. Check out thebigschmear.com to download episodes of the podcast, get a recipe shared by my guests, and check out the growing list of recommended Jewish food restaurants. That's thebigschmear.com. Schmear is spelled S-C-H-M-E-A-R. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy eating.